we know the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groaning. Now, groaning is something I think we can sink our teeth in. You know, we can, we can talk about groaning. How long do we want the list of our groaning to be? Well, we can start with creation. Paul starts with creation. There's water and air pollution. There's litter. There are water levels that are rising. There is uh, temperature that is increasing. There's erosion. We can groan about things in our own lives. Dad jokes. Puns. The roof that's leaking. The faucet that won't stop dripping. The weeds that keep coming back. You know, school boards, city council, denominations, shootings, Congress, Gaza, pandemic. You know, what we groan about is something of an indication of where we stand in our culture. Most of us would not be groaning about evictions or hunger. We would not be groaning about unemployment or livable wage. People groan about a variety of things. Why do we groan? Well, things are not as they should be. People are not as they should be. We are not as we should be. Life just isn't what it should be. So we groan. Now elsewhere in this passage, Paul talks about sighing. You know, sighing. It's a deflation. It's an exhaling. The air has gone out of us. How often do we just walk around and sigh? And we're not even aware that we're sighing. You know, what do we do with all this groaning and sighing? Well, it's, it's easy to be angry about things not the way they should be. It's easy to misplace our anger and take it out on our partner or the kids. We can respond to this groaning and sighing with indifference or fear, depression, despair. My favorite response is cynicism. It's not going to get any better. This is just how it is. Give it up. Let go of it. Quit. Chapter 7 of Romans is Paul's groaning chapter. That famous verse, he, you know, he talks about that which I don't want to do I do. And that, and I do what I don't want to do. And there is no health in me, wretched man that I am. And that's how Paul ends chapter 7. And then he begins chapter 8, where he introduces the Spirit. 
The Spirit is the alternative to our groaning and sighing. And the Spirit gives hope. For Paul, it's not despair, but the Spirit. It's not cynicism, but hope. It's not apathy, but the Spirit. And he talks of hope as the first fruits. We're not there yet, but we're on the way. And he talks about our groaning in terms of labor pains. Labor pains, not death throes. Our groaning is labor pains. It's pointing toward the future. Death throes point to the end. Labor pains are the beginning. We haven't reached the end. We haven't reached the goal. If we did reach the goal, we wouldn't have to hope. But since we haven't reached the goal, we hope. And Paul says, we are saved in hope. And I think that has a double meaning. The first meaning is hope saves us. Having hope gives us the energy to live and to move. Yesterday's uh, crypto quote in the dispatch was an Arab proverb. And it said, the one who has hope has everything. If a person has hope, they keep going. The other meaning of we are saved by hope is that we're still in process. God is not done with us, so be patient. And Paul uses the image of birth for hope. He uses the image of adoption and inheritance Abandonment and forsakenness is the option, is the opposite of hope. It's the opposite of adoption. Paul talks about being an heir. Well, an heir is going to receive the inheritance, but they haven't got it yet. And then Paul uses the image of redemption bringing things back to where they belong, to where they ought to be. And he acknowledges that bringing things back to where they ought to be is, is not the same as how they were, you know, because one has gone through experiences that flavor and color that redemption. Think of a marriage that has been redeemed. The couple is back together, but they experience their marriage differently now because of what they've been through. I would say the pandemic is an exercise in hope, and it's been an exercise in redemption. We have hoped for a vaccine. We have hoped 
for reopening. We have hoped for regathering and not wearing masks and sitting closer to each other and hugging. But we haven't crossed the goal line yet, so we hope. Things will be the same, but they won't be. They'll be different. And normal will be different for what we've gone through. Going back to the workplace will be different. Coming back to church will be different. Going to church meetings will be different. We've experienced Zoom, and some of the meetings might stay on Zoom. Courtrooms will go back, but it'll be different. How we dress, we'll have to wear real clothes. Andy Dufresne in Shawshank Redemption says that hope is a good thing, maybe the best thing. What empowers us to hope? Paul says the Spirit empowers us to hope. Just as groaning and sighing deflate us, dispirit us, the Spirit inflates us, inspires us. I think I've said it in every Pentecost sermon on which I've preached that the Greek and Hebrew words for breath and spirit are the same words. Spirit and breath are the same words in those languages. And it's the spirit that gives us that breath. It's the spirit that sparks our vision and causes us to dream and ignites our imagination. You know, when, when Peter talks on Pentecost about the gift of the spirit, he talks about your young people will dream dreams and your old people will have visions. The Spirit gives us that vision of what we're hoping for. And the Spirit gives us energy and power and agency, just like breath. You know, we get a new breath, we get a second wind. And the Spirit gives us solidarity it gives us solidarity with the creation that's groaning. It gives us solidarity with the other who are groaning for all their reasons. It connects us. And the Spirit gives us the power to roll up our sleeves and work toward that vision of hope. Then Paul goes on with these two verses. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints of God according to the will of God. 
Paul acknowledges that we can be overcome with groaning and despair and defeat and sighing and cynicism. And Paul says, we can't even articulate the words for how we're feeling. And he says, pay attention to your groaning. I think most of us have participated in a devotional exercise at the beginning of a Bible study or a prayer group where the leader asks us to turn off our Zoom cameras and asks us to close our eyes and relax ourselves and put our hands in our laps and then says, exhale. And now inhale. Exhale and now inhale. Be aware of breathing God. Pay attention to your breath. Paul's saying, pay attention to your groaning. The Spirit is groaning with you. The Spirit is sighing with your heart. The Spirit is in your heart, sighing with you. We may think we're alone and forsaken and hopeless, but the Spirit is in there with us and for us. I love these verses in Romans. Paul's saying that our very groaning is evidence of God's presence. God empowers us to groan. My sign about God's absence is the sign of God's presence. Some of you read Anne Lamott. You know, and she writes about prayer and that prayer isn't fancy, it isn't big words, it doesn't need a seminary degree. Prayer is just saying what's on your heart. And she wrote the book, Help, Thanks, Wow. That help is a prayer. Thanks is a prayer. Wow is a prayer. In that book, she also says there's a fourth prayer that she didn't have the courage to put in the title because it's a four-letter word that we often use. And she said, that's a prayer. I'd add a fifth one, groaning. There's a story of... um, Two young fish, and one morning were swimming along, and coming toward them was an older fish. And they nodded at each other, and the older fish said, How's the water today, boys? 
and they swam past each other. And after a little while, the one younger fish turned to the other and said, What's water? We can live so much in a mindset that we're unaware that we're living in it. We are unconscious of it. It is so deeply embedded in our thinking. It's, it's the air we breathe. We can be so deeply embedded in despair and cynicism and self-hatred and jealousy and all the isms and the way it's always been that we're not even aware that we're in it and we don't see any alternative to our lives. What the Spirit does is give us a choice. The Spirit says there's an alternative. And the Spirit gives us hope because there is an alternative to what we're living in. Peter Story was the Methodist bishop in South Africa during the struggles for apartheid, against apartheid. And he talks about God's great nevertheless. He wrote, you know, the government had all the power, but nevertheless, God was with the poor in South Africa. The odds were heavily against a peaceful revolution. Nevertheless, God was on the side of peace. There was a strong temptation to retaliate. Nevertheless, God gave us a means of forgiving our enemies and being reconciled. Story writes that no matter what the odds, if God is in something, no obstacle is stronger than God's great nevertheless. We live in difficult, chaotic times. Nevertheless, God is guiding creation. The Spirit is not always actively visible. Nevertheless, God is increasingly attentive to our pleadings. We may not know what God has in store for us. But nevertheless, the Spirit knows the mind of God and is leading us to God's purposes. The Spirit is the water in which we choose to swim. The Spirit is God's nevertheless. The Spirit offers us a choice and an alternative. The Spirit offers us hope. And hope 
is a good thing. Maybe the best thing. May it be so. Amen.